We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back to your listener, the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. I've got a spring in my step, the voice is back, got my energy levels are back, and uh, I think I've shaken off the worst of this COVID and pretty much back to normal, which is quite a relief because it's taken a while, so it's just good to feel normal. Anyway, this is episode 357, and it's the 4th of October 2022. I'm Trevor. AKA the Iron Fist, with me as always, Joe the Tech Guy. Evening all. If you're in the chat room, uh, say hello. We'll try and get to your chats, try and incorporate them when we can. No promises, but we'll do our best. And Joe, I thought uh, as the week progressed in terms of news, I just couldn't help but turn this into a podcast looking at international events, foreign affairs, particularly we're going to talk about uh, the Nord Stream pipeline and the goings-on in the UK with the new Prime Minister and the budget and the and the sort of temporary crashing of the economy that happened there and maybe a little bit about um, Brazil and Japan and China. And if I can get to that, it'll probably take about three hours. Joe, you got, you got to go anywhere? Joe, you got any appointments? Hang on. I've got absolutely nothing to do, so I'm fine. Okay. No one's in the chat room yet. Oh, there's two people watching and they're not saying anything. Two people so, watching. Yeah. I, I have my rum by my feet, so I'm fine. Very good. All right. Well, um, before we get into those topics, a little bit of sort of homework type stuff or just harking back to some things we've mentioned just previously. So I mentioned um, a week or so ago that... I thought voluntary assisted dying succeeded because politicians had witnessed some tough deaths of their elderly relatives and that was one of the reasons why they were prepared to pass uh, VAD laws due to their personal experience. And I think I mentioned at the time um, a senator who opposed euthanasia and she's going to change her vote after witnessing her father's death, and that was um, Jane Hume. So uh, she says her father's decision to die under Victoria's voluntary assisted dying laws profoundly altered her view on whether the Territory should have the same rights. And what I should have mentioned, and this was mentioned in a tweet by Denise Shrivel, was that it's quite pathetic that people have to rely on a personal experience and can't, as a professional politician, put themselves in somebody's shoes and examine it and arrive at that decision without having to go through a personal experience. So as Denise says in this tweet, one of the things I dislike the most is politicians changing their position on issues like this only when they're personally impacted. So that is a good point, I think, is... It's been noted in the US um, uh, about the anti-gay conservatives, the Republicans, 
who suddenly become, come on side when one of their children comes out as gay. Yeah. So, uh, and and it 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 it's, it seems to be a common theme amongst conservatives, although it doesn't seem to have worked for um, Tony Abbott, does it? No, it didn't. Almost respect him a bit more for it, but okay, good to change your mind. But gee, it really is quite pathetic that you need a personal experience on a topic that you should really be able to look at and empathise. That's what being human is about, empathy and being able to put yourselves in somebody else's shoes and imagine what that experience is like from their point of view. And it shows a real lack of empathy that you can only rely on your personal experience to change your mind, some of these people. Anyway. But, um, <clears throat> Jonathan Haidt argues that um, our, our, uh, our political views are founded by the way uh, we value certain things and conservatives value uh, morality and order. Hmm. And so they can't empathise because that's... And I can't remember what the exact personality traits are. Apparently there are five major traits mm-hmm. and conservatives tend to rank higher in certain traits and it seems to be around um, deference to authority. Yeah, they like to be told what something should be rather than working it out for themselves. As opposed to left that tend to be much more individualistic. Mm. And therefore, because they're individualistic, I think they're probably better able to empathise. Yeah, I think that's going up. The government controlling my life in this way, and therefore, yeah, it, it's it's very much. I don't want the government telling me what to do, mm. isn't it? Yeah, I don't want them telling me whether or not I can get married. I don't want them telling me whether or not I can take my own life. Mm. Mm. Anyway, there's some psychological issues going on there. So just wanted to mention that about um, people relying on personal experience. And I was also talking about, you know, when the Liberal Party eventually splits and I was talking about how they need to structure it so that the evangelicals can't take over the new party. I may not have been particularly clear. Obviously, when they create the new party, they can't just have a rule that says... We're not letting evangelicals in. No, no religious nutters are here. That's right. You can't have a rule like that. You've just got to have rules or a constitution that makes it, in, you know, unpalatable that these people would not want to, and you've got to entrench the rules so so firmly in the constitution that the evangelicals would not look at it and think, oh, well, we could come in and change that. So you've got to really have it as a fundamental part of the constitution of this new group to be very, very pro-secular so, um, so yeah, that's what I was thinking of there. As I was listening to the episode last week, I was thinking, oh, it sounds like I'm saying we should just ban evangelicals, and that's not the case. Just, just have rules that make it that there's no way they'd want to join, and they wouldn't think they could change it. So, so well, it was ban evangelicals. I'm, I'm down for that. Yeah, well, it wouldn't work. But uh, anyway, just to clarify that, and still on that sort of issue. Um, Joe, there's been a CPAC conference in Sydney, I think it is, like a conservative person. Okay, I know CPAC in the States. I didn't know there was one over here. Yeah, there's been a conference here and all the usual suspects have been trotted out and have been speaking at that. Um, 
uh, one of which was Amanda Stoker and also there was um, uh, Liberal Party uh, Federal Vice President Tina McQueen. So saw an article in The Guardian and uh, former Liberal Senator Amanda Stoker has argued the coalition will remain in opposition, quote, for a very long time unless it focuses more on conservative social issues. While the Liberals' federal Vice President Tina McQueen has welcomed the defeat of lefties within uh, the Liberal Party. So, well, I welcome that. Yes. Have you seen the allegations in the states that the Democrats were funding the extremist Republican candidates? Yes, I did have that. It's somewhere in these notes, somewhere in way, way down in there, where I was going to talk about it at one stage, where, yeah, they found the craziest um, mm-hmm. Republicans and provided financial funding, funding yeah. and, and sort of were promoting them to make sure that they got pre-selected uh, yes. for the Republicans because they figured that that would make it an easier victory then in the actual election for the Democrat candidate to face one of the nutters. So interesting tactic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they've got a lot of heat over it. Has it worked or, or not? I don't know whether um, it's been successful. I mean, the yeah. elections are yet to happen, but yeah, there was it was certainly pointed out that they were doing it and various comments were made about how underhanded it was. Mm. So anyway, this uh, conference, Joe, is the Conservative Political Action Conference. Uh, it was held on Sunday and it criticised the approach of the Liberal Party and the former Prime Minister Scott Morrison, suggesting they had been too progressive. This is the wonderland that these people are in. McQueen called on the party to renew with more conservative candidates after the lefties had lost their seats. And she called on conference attendees to rejoin the Liberal Party, acknowledging the concerns of conservative critics. Uh, She appeared to welcome the defeat of numerous moderate Liberal MPs. Stick around, she said. We're listening to you. We hear you. We're moving forward. And... um, she said, the good thing about the last federal election is a lot of those lefties are gone. We should rejoice in that. People I've been trying to get rid of for a decade have gone. We need to renew with good conservative candidates. Well, there we go. The Liberal Party, the calibre of candidate, is not going to improve. I'm sure the family first politicians will be swarming to come back, won't they? Yeah, why not? Just uh, join up as a liberal, and mm-hmm. you'll be you'll be pre-selected in the blink of an eye, and you'll be hosting the district meetings hey, meeting. before you know it. Mm. <clears throat> and I did mention as well, of course, it's not the first time that religions have split a political party, and it was in the 1950s that B. A. Santa Maria led a Catholic faction, which split from the Labor Party and formed the DLP, and. For the next 20 years, DLP preferences basically crippled Labor's chances until Goff in 72. And um, in this case, well, in that case, it was the Catholic faction left the party and split. In this, in this occasion, I think the parasitic Pentecostals will basically consume the host. So they'll stay there and it'll be the non-religious who will have to um, exit the party in some way. I think the uh, the evangelicals just won't let go. 
they're just going to suck the life out of the host. Oh, so there we go. Um, and just today from, you know, often I think I could be accused of being a bit of a pessimist, Joe, do you think? Am I a bit of a doom and gloom type of guy lately? Oh, the fate of the world? Mind, but... oh, okay, good. Well, um, Essential Poll asked perceptions of the future for humanity, asking Australians, think about the future. Do you think life will be better or worse for humanity in 10 years? And um, 42% of people thought it would be worse. And um, in 100 years' time, 39% of people thought it would be worse. The unsure, uh, the people who thought it was going to be better in 10 years were 33% and in 100 years, 28%. So basically the general population is a bit like me in that negative about the prospects for humanity as to whether it's going to be better or worse over the next 10 and 100 years. Um, I've just finished reading a book, Joe, about um, energy and how difficult it will be to achieve net zero on this planet. Mm. And really, uh, I'll talk about this book at some stage in the next few weeks, but uh, the amount of energy that has gone into making fertiliser, for starters, and the fact that basically uh, fertiliser, where we've extracted nitrogen out of the air and created uh, nitrogen-based fertilisers, feeds half the world's population. If we didn't have uh, the ability to make this fertiliser, there would not be enough food for half the world's population. Basically, yeah. Yeah, and it requires an enormous amount of energy, um, plus the energy required for things like uh, concrete, um, which is another one. Yeah, there's a big push. They're, They're starting to build wood skyscrapers. Yes, yeah. Um, because they're saying that engineered timber is actually uh, an incredibly strong and durable material. Mm. So anyway, I've become quite pessimistic about our chances of getting to net zero by 2050. More about that at another time. But um, the thing that's really got me going, Joe, in the um, – oh, actually, I've, I should have put it on the screen. That was the, uh, that was the graph for the um, – for, Still in positive news, we've got two big stored pumped hydro yes. projects starting in Queensland. Yes. That was positive. Quite a lot of money being spent on pumped hydro. So that was good to mm-hmm. see. Good announcement. Hope it's in the right spot. Hope they've done the, the details I, I had correctly. a quick look. Mm-hmm. Um, so Split Yard Creek, which is the Wyvernhoe pumped hydro, yes, is – a hundred meters above Wyvernhoe, mm. and can provide. I think it was half a megawatt for ten hours. Mm-hmm. The smaller of the two, which is the back of the sunny coast, is two hundred meters from what I could see on the map. Mm-hmm. And they're saying will provide. Uh, sorry, it, was it five hundred megawatts? I think okay. it was Wyvernhoe. Um, this is going to be two gigawatts mm. for 24 hours. Right. And then the one up behind Mackay looks to be 600 metres in difference height. Mm-hmm. 
So it doesn't actually need to store much water because it's the water times the height. Yep. And so because of the height, they can store relatively little water to produce quite a lot of electricity. Mm. And that was going to be something like five gigawatts for 24 hours. Mm. Yeah. So I think it's going to be the largest in the Southern Hemisphere or largest in the world. Okay. Pumped hydro. I've got a thing about claims to be the largest in the Southern Hemisphere about anything. I remember (laughs) when I was travelling and somehow it came up some topic about, you know, there's always this thing, the biggest uh, water slide in the Southern Hemisphere, the biggest runway yep. in the Southern Hemisphere. Or and some German guy was like, what's this talk about the biggest in the Southern Hemisphere? There's nothing in the Southern Hemisphere. Like you could have the biggest in the Southern Hemisphere and it'd be like the, there'd be 50 things bigger than the Northern Hemisphere. What a load of poppycock he was sort of saying. So, um, yeah. Um, the thing about the... I was saying it's the largest in the world. Largest so. in the world. Oh, well, okay, that counts. Um I hope, I didn't look. I hope the government owns it because one of the problems with Split Yard mm. at Wyvernhoe is it's privately owned, I think. And well, it's owned by Clean Co, which as far as I know is government-owned private company. Because mm, my understanding was that they were not always using it because they were playing with the, um, with the rates. Pricing? Yes, and they were not actually using it when they could have because to do so wouldn't have been advantageous for pricing. But maybe I got that wrong. So, yeah. yeah I thought Clinco and CS are both state-owned, mm, Okay, although they operate privately. Mm. I was a construction worker on the split yard dam. Were you? Yes. Yeah, well, there you go. Got a job. Um, this guy, well, there's a gang of us, and I was a construction worker class three, and somebody would drill a hole in this little mm-hmm. saddle. So basically uh, it wasn't the main dam wall, it was just a little side wall off, off from the side. And if you're going to put a dam wall up, you need to make sure that the ground underneath is not porous because you don't want the water yep. just seeping under the dam wall. So you drill holes into it and pump a liquid cement into it under pressure to fill out all the cracks and then it dries and that's how you make uh, underneath the dam wall. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And you'd, I would sit above this hole with a um, pump line going in, and every so often the the line would clog as a big piece of concrete would go through that hadn't quite um, dissolved properly. So you have to open the valve up, let it through, and then close the valve up and then maintain the correct pressure and do that right. for 12 hours, Joe. I lasted six months, saved a bucket load of money, and then went overseas for nine months. There we go. Yep. Yeah, I'm sure it's one of those mind-numbing but well-paid jobs. It was, yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, Hello in the chat room to everybody. Um, Don and Alison and... Bronwyn, Greg. Yep, and Greg and Bronwyn. I think it's there. Yep. Hello to everybody there. Now, Nord Stream, I find this one fascinating, Joe. Um, And I was talking to some people... Uh, at a function and saying, what do you think about this Nord Stream? And they're like, don't know anything about it. So I don't know about you in the chat room. Tell me if you've got, if you're aware of Nord Stream, if you've got firm ideas about it. I'm interested to know how much people know about this whole Nord Stream saga. So essentially um, there was Nord Stream gas pipeline running from 
Russia to Germany. And recently, Russia completed Nord Stream 2. Um, it was never actually, uh, well, the United States said, we don't want Nord Stream 2 operating and told Germany not to accept any gas through it. And so Germany never actually got any gas through Nord Stream 2, the new one. <clears throat> Nord Stream, the first one, was actually had ceased pumping because the Russians claimed it needed maintenance. So there wasn't actually any gas being delivered to Germany through these two pipelines. But um, they've been subject to sabotage. Like this is not a accident. It wasn't like a aircraft carrier accidentally dropped an anchor and tore the pipeline or something like that. Because, Joe, they're apparently built to withstand the anchor of an aircraft carrier. So, uh, Yeah, they, because they run at, a, I think it was 100 megapascals, mm-hmm. 10 megapascals, 100 bar, mm-hmm. um, they're, they're 40 to 50 centimetres thick, Yeah, the, the, the walls. Yeah. They're seriously strong pipes. Mm-hmm. So it took some serious explosive to blow them up in a couple of different uh, points. Um, so the seismographs they're saying that they've seen in Sweden, uh, they reckon was the equivalent of 100 kilos of TNT. Yes. So the question, of course, is who done it? Um, who done it indeed? And basically the main narrative that you would read in the mainstream media is, well, of course, Russia did it. And I'm, as you know, reading widely on Twitter and other crazy areas and blogs and things, and the response there is basically anybody else except Russia you should start pointing your fingers at, and in particular well, the United States. Un- unless, unless it was a false flag, which is a possibility. Yes, okay. So let's deal with that. The false flag would be that Russia... Um, a false flag is when an, uh, an act is committed by one group um, secretly so that they can blame another group and that then mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, punishment and whatever will fall on that other group. So that's what false flag operations are. So a false flag would be, okay, Russia did this, blew up the pipeline, so it would look like, say, America blew up the pipeline, and everyone would be angry at America. That's the sort of false flag. Yeah, I, I would have said they'd blame it on the Ukrainians, but... Right, or somebody like that, yeah. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, but, I mean, seriously, we couldn't really expect the Ukrainians to be capable of this sort of sabotage and be do it undetected. It's a pretty tall order, isn't it? I think they've got to get their hands full, haven't they, with stuff? Possibly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and if it was a false flag, I would have expected an earlier announcement that mm. they had intelligence or they'd caught or mm. whatever. Mm. Yeah. I um, mean, usually you don't wait so long with lots of idle speculation before going, ha-ha, we know who it is. Yep. It's them. Blame them. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty extreme false flag operation to blow up a multi-billion dollar pipeline that you own 
like normally a false flag. And it sounds like the amount of damage done, it's not a small hole. This will require serious repairs. Correct. It's not something they can fix quite quickly, blame somebody else and carry on business as usual. Yes. And, I mean, if Russia wanted to put pressure on Germany and Europe about gas supply, they could have just turned off the tap. They did. Which, in fact, they had been doing. So, um, so Russia had enormous bargaining power with that pipeline and blowing it up would just, has just evaporated that bargaining power that Russia had. You wouldn't do that for a bit of publicity or false flag operation. It just doesn't add up that you would blow up it's a multi-billion actually, dollar pipeline so that you could blame the Americans when nobody's going to believe you anyway. It's the Scottish separatists <clears throat> because they want the money from the North Sea gas to fund their independence from the UK. Yes. So it, they've destroyed the uh, Nord Stream pipeline yeah. so that they can sell more gas to Europe. Yeah. You've got to look Because apparently the UK is actually profiting from this. Well, yeah. actually, all of the North Sea producers. Yes. You've got to look at capacity, though. The ability to do yeah. this and not get caught. Like, the place is just crawling with Swedish, um, Danish, Polish, German it's navies. Territorial waters, but it is in the Swedish and Danish exclusion zones. Yes. So any fishing, anything that looks like a possibly commercial vehicle mm. will be closely inspected. Yes. And, of course, there's American military um, stuff floating around there and running operations as well. So it's hard to imagine Russia could actually do it and not be caught. The only ones you would think who could do it and not get caught would be the Americans. They're really the only ones with the capacity to blow it up and not get caught because they can just control everything. So, um, so, uh, so it's interesting that the main narrative is that... Now, look, I have no idea who blew the damn thing up. We're all just guessing here. It's but idle speculation. It, it is, but you do have to add up the clues and the pros and the cons and come to a conclusion of who's the most likely in this situation. So, um, so there's been some good memes. Um, let me see. Uh, one of them here was... Um, see if this comes up. Was um, who hates Nord Stream? The USA. Uh, who put sanctions on companies building Nord Stream? USA. Who said Nord Stream would be shut down one way or another? The USA. And then uh, who sabotaged Nord Stream? Well, it's got to be Russia. Like um, this is sort of the way this discourse is running. Um, Aaron Marte. What did he say? Um, in response to Europe's energy crisis, Putin said on September 17 that if Europe wanted to solve the issue, it can ignore US orders and open up Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Just push the button and everything will get going, is what Putin said. So what we had, dear listener, was um, Nord Stream 2 was built and America said anybody who has anything to do with that 
is going to be subject to US sanctions. Don't buy gas through Nord Stream 2. And at the same time then, the Russians said, gee, we need to close Nord Stream 1 for maintenance. Now, obviously, that was probably bullshit. But as a way of saying, we've got gas, we just want to run it through Nord Stream 2, you can buy it. And uh, it seems that there were negotiations going on in secret between the Russians well, and the Germans. Apparently a German, fa- fairly senior German politician, mm. said thank you, America, when news came in. Uh, that was a Polish one. Was it? Well, yeah, we'll get to the Poles. And there were okay. definitely um, protests in Germany by Germans saying, stop all this sanction business and just let the pipeline operate. So there was pressure in Germany. So well, that, um, There's serious concerns in Europe. I'm mostly in the UK, but in mm. o- across Europe about a looming energy crisis. Yeah. Coming into winter. Yeah. So um, um, I've been listening to this um, Twitter guy called Professional Hog Groomer. That doesn't sound like a very authoritative source, but he's got some good stuff to write about different things. He says, um, Western liberals somehow simultaneously believe that Russia is on the verge of economic collapse and as a result of having no market for their gas, and Russia just sabotaged their most potentially profitable export infrastructure right before winter. It just does not make sense that Russia would blow up its own pipeline when it could turn well, off the tap to apply pressure. There is one possibility. Mm-hmm. Gazprom. Well, yeah, what's Gazprom? So Gazprom is the Russian gas mm-hmm. exporter that was sold off at bargain basement rates in the 90s mm-hmm. to some private individuals, some of whom have been outspoken against Putin. What are you saying? The actual – but a sovereign state would have to do this. You're saying a private – private. No, no, no. Uh, I'm saying that the one possible – the one possibility of Russia doing it is Putin doing a strike against uh, one of his critics. Right, okay. But surely Russia gets all of the revenue from this gas that's going through war. No, Gazprom gets the revenue. Right. Some of which goes back to Russia. Right, okay. So there's some very wealthy individuals and the allegation is that Putin is taking 50% of the private profits anyway. I would have thought he's and getting his, whatever he wants from that. I don't know. So apparently all the oligarchs, it's mm. give me 50% or I'll take it all. Yeah. Is yep. the deal that's under the table. Yep. And he wants to keep the oligarchs happy, so he'd want to keep paying them as well. But yeah, yeah but risk, apparently it's... this oligarch has been outspoken about the war. Right. Yeah. This is, this is one, of, one of the ones, you Doesn't... know, there's, there's a spate of people accidentally jumping out of windows. Right. Yeah. Yes. I still think it doesn't add up that you would blow up an entire pipeline. Your best bargain no, chip I'm just sat- in your battle just with saying, the West. Yeah, that's that's going to be if it, if it is Russia, that's the reason. Mm. So, uh, so what are the mainstream media saying? Um, uh, Associated Press says, "Quote: The Kremlin and Russian state media are aggressively pushing a baseless conspiracy theory, blaming the United States for damage to national gas pipelines in the Baltic Sea." 
In what analysts said is another effort to split the US and its European allies. Look, I hate conspiracy theories. Like I really, I hate the 9-11 conspiracy, the idea that any number of people get together and I hate the idea of them. Well, that was a false flag. Yeah. Is the allegation. Yeah. I wouldn't call this a baseless conspiracy theory. It's got some base to it. It's not, you can't call this baseless. Um, but anyway, that's what AAP is saying. Um, and um, Tucker Carlson, the um, right-wing commentator in America, he's basically come Not out. Job. Yeah, he's basically come out and said, I think the US has done this. And um, Business Insider, um, talking about Tucker Carlson, says, uh, Tucker Carlson pushed a Russian conspiracy theory suggesting the US blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. The claim was then recycled by Russian state TV and other far-right influences. Kremlin and US far-right propaganda often mirror each other. So, Well, that's true. They do. Yes, it, it does. And, you know, I always have to stop myself when I want to start quoting somebody like Tucker Carlson and saying I think he's got it right on this occasion. But... Um, yeah, even yeah. a stop clock. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, indeed. Now, what else have I got here in terms of quotes? Um, oh, Caitlin Johnston says, here's a good theory, Joe. If we really believe that Putin is so crazy and irrational that he's begun bombing his own stuff and sabotaging his own infrastructure, the strategy should logically be to simply stand back and let him bomb Russia into the Stone Age. So, you know, if you really did think that, just uh, let him keep going would be a good strategy. Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of innocent Russians are going to get caught up. Yeah. I mean, people are saying he is crazy. That's why he's hell-bent on pouring more and more resources into a war that he's already lost. Yeah. Uh, look, he's crazy. he's crazy, but he's also crazy smart. In, in many ways. We're going to get on to Putin and how uh, his speech, which was labelled as a irrational rant, really had some nuggets of gold in there. So mm-hmm. get amongst some nuggets of shit as well. <laughs> it's, we'll, we'll keep going. I'll yeah, get to I that. mean, there's, there's some speculation about his illnesses yeah. affecting him mentally. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, of course... Um, the US has what's called the Wolfowitz Doctrine, set up after the fall of the USSR, which made it US policy to ensure that no other superpower develops which can rival US supremacy. And uh, this doesn't just apply to Russia and China, but to the EU as well. So it's US official policy to keep groups like the EU divided and conquered as well. And um, doing a good job with Brexit. Yes. So, um, so looking at those circumstances, of course, where does Germany buy its gas from now as a result of the closure of the pipelines? The North Sea. Well, and the United States. Uh, yeah, buying lots from the United States. So, um, surely I mean, Canada. Uh, you know, America just, have gas? Yeah, apparently they do. Shipping okay. it over. 
this is part of the problem is that the Germans have to create new port facilities in order to handle the, um, the shipping of this from the United States. So, um, so yeah, the US is very keen to sell their gas to... And, and they're one of the biggest beneficiaries, if not the biggest beneficiary of the pipeline um, being blown up, selling US gas. There's a number of things adding up here. But um, mm. here's a really interesting one. So this, I mean... Uh, I, w- I wonder if there's a, a well-known um, policy of the United States in relation to Nord Stream. Um, the Undersecretary of State, Victoria Newland, had this to say, Joan. Um, with regard to Nord Stream 2, uh, we continue to have uh, very strong and clear conversations Uh, with our German allies, and I want to be clear with you today. If Russia invades Ukraine, one way or another, Nord Stream 2 will not move forward. So that was before hostilities. If Russia invades Ukraine, Nord Stream 2 will not go ahead. She doesn't own it, but she was confidently declaring it would not go ahead. But she's only the... Under Secretary of State, I mean, did somebody like uh, Joe Biden have anything to say about this? Um, in fact, he did. Let's let's uh, bring this clip up from Joe Biden. Let me answer the first question first. If Germany, if uh, if Russia invades, uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the uh, the, the border of Ukraine again. Then. Uh, there will be uh, we there will be no longer a Nord Stream two. We we will bring an end to it. But but how will you how will you do that exactly? Since the project and control of the project is within Germany's control, we will. Uh, I promise you, we'll be able to do it. Is there a translator going in the background? A translator? What do you mean? I, I could hear little voices going in the background of that clip. I don't know what you mean. But all I could hear him was saying, if Russia invades Ukraine, there will be no Nord Stream 2. It's going to disappear. It's not going to exist yeah. anymore. We're not going to say how, but don't you worry. <laughs> and this is a baseless conspiracy theory when... Joe Biden and the Undersecretary of State both say if they invade, Nord Stream 2 is going to disappear. And then funnily enough, it gets blown up and the only people who seem capable of doing it without getting caught are the USA. The people who benefit the most from selling gas is the USA. And look, you just can't call it a baseless conspiracy theory. It's It's got legs. I wonder how willing all of those nations will be if they find evidence that it is the USA mm. to speak openly about it. Yeah. This is the tricky part is obviously, let's say, US Navy SEALs or some military mm-hmm. people, there has to be a handful of people involved at some point in doing this. And it's hard to keep these things secret for a long time even in the military. So it would not surprise. Yeah, I mean, 
special forces won't talk, mm. but the people who took them out will have said, oh, yeah, we dropped some Navy SEALs off here at this time. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, or like um, the DGSE in New Zealand. Mm. When they sank the, what was the the Greenpeace ship? Um, Rainbow Warrior. Yeah. Mm. You know what they say, Joe? Loose lips sink ships. Apparently. Mm. I just got to hope that loose lips didn't sink <laughs> this pipeline. Uh, in the chat room, Alison says, Scott Morrison did it. Add him to the list. <laughs> Scott Morrison is such a – he doesn't get anything done. That's the, Look, that's the floor Scott in, that th- in that hypothesis. Scott couldn't have done it because he's so full of hot air he couldn't get to the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> that's it, yeah. Um, uh, let's see. No great other theories in there. Uh, I'd like to know in the chat room, um, please let me give your best guess as to who you think did it. Uh, I'd be keen to know what your thoughts are. Um, Still on this, what else have I got here? Um, uh, um, there was a guy, uh, Jeffrey Sachs, American economist, academic, public policy analyst, former director of the Earth Institute at Columbia University, um, named by Time magazine as one of the most hundred most influential people in the world. Uh, he had something to say about this. Let me find what he had to say. Um, I think he kind of sums it up, actually. I hope he will. The destruction of uh, the Nord Stream pipeline, which I I would bet was a U.S. action, perhaps U.S. and, and Poland. Uh, this is... Uh, hey, Jeff, Jeff, we got to stop there. That's, a, that's a quite a statement as well. Why do you feel Absolutely. that that was a U.S. action? What evidence do you have of that? Well, first of all, there's direct radar evidence that U.S. Uh, helicopters, military helicopters that are normally based in Gdansk, uh, were uh, circling over this area. We also had the threats from the United States earlier in this year that one way or another, we are going to end Nord Stream. We also have a remarkable statement by Secretary Blinken last Friday in a press conference. That he says, this is also a tremendous opportunity it's a strange way to, it's, uh, sorry, it's a strange way to talk if you're worried about the piracy on international infrastructure of vital significance. So I know this runs counter to our narrative. It runs, you're not allowed to say these things uh, in, in, uh, in the West. But the fact of the matter is, all over the world, when I talk to people, they think the okay. U.S. did it. And just to tell you, and, and by, by the way, even reporters on our papers that are involved, tell me privately, yeah, well, of course, but well, it doesn't show up in our, our media. Professor, I, I don't want to get into the for Tad about what did or... He was on Fox News. They were quite surprised, apparently, when he started running that line. I was a bit reluctant to run that clip because I sort of I saw a thing, I don't know, dear listener, if you've been um, following my recommendation of listening to Decoding the Gurus. Have you been listening to that one, Joe? Decoding the no. Gurus? You'd like it, Joe, because they they really bag Jordan Peterson a lot, and um, they go into these uh, sort of um, dark web guys and and these gurus, <clears throat> Weinstein's and whatever, and and decode them and point out their rubbish. Anyway, 
there was a tweet there which indicates that this Jeffrey Sachs who you've just listened to kind of got on the conspiracy bandwagon in relation to, um, I think, COVID having been created in the lab and let loose or something like that. So he might have a bit of the conspiracist sort of taint about him on other issues. So bear that in mind as you listen to that. Um, I still think it's not completely baseless. Um, in the chat room, um, Alison says, now fully convinced it's the US. Come on, somebody else give some opinions in there. Don't hold back in the chat room. <clears throat> um, got a link to, oh, there's an article you'll see in the notes. Um, maybe with Polish assistance. Um, they might have been involved in some way as well. Interestingly, Joe, the Germans have really not said much about this at all. They've been... Yeah, I mean, the, the reluctance of all the nations <clears throat> involved to not speak up is strange. Mm. Yeah. You, you'd, you'd expect some, uh, some announcements, and all I could see was... The Swedish and Danish are both running their own investigations mm. and they're cooperating and sharing information. And, yeah. and that seems to be about the extent of it. Yeah. The Germans are not jumping up and down saying, God damn Russians, why did you blow up that pipeline for? Um, they've been kind of quiet. So, yeah. Um, all right. Um, uh, Bronwyn says there is some circumstantial evidence pointing to the US, but no smoking gun. Is that because a pipeline can't smoke underwater? Well, there was talk about setting fire to the gas because mm. there was concerns the amount of methane that right. had been because ah. it's a potent greenhouse gas. Yes, and saying setting fire to it would convert it at least into carbon dioxide, which is less potent. True. Mm. Ah, okay. Um, finally, again from this guy, professional hog rumour. And I think this is interesting. Uh, the outrageous sabotage of Nord Stream indicates that the West feels secure enough in its control of Western media that they can construct a narrative of their choosing, irrespective of evidence or complete lack of motive. I think there's something to that. To me, it's quite a preposterous story, but... Um, they've been able to run it and get away with running the story. I think that's interesting. Like but it, it was Russia or? Uh, yes. So I think this would embolden America to think they could do anything and blame Russia because they've taken a pretty extraordinary event and blamed Russia against all odds and seem to be getting away with it. So, you know, they could almost tell us that the sun's going to rise, you know, in the west and set in the east and people are going to accept it. They can almost tell any story they want to at this point, it seems to me. Yeah, I mean, of the European countries, I'd expect the French probably to be the most outspoken. I think if you're going to hear a, a leak, mm. they're the most rebellious against the American influence. Yeah, well... Well, the Americans wouldn't have involved them in the operation. They wouldn't have trusted those Frenchies for that. So. Yeah, exactly. Mm. All right. Um, Putin. Crazy, smart, 
crazy smart, smart crazy. I think um, we're going to be looking at Liz Truss in a little while and I'm going to be playing some um, clips. They were blown up at different times. Uh, there was an explosion on one about 12 hours before two explosions that took out the second. Hmm. So one of the, the pipelines was hit once in one area mm. and there were explosions in a second area about 12 hours later that took out both pipelines at the same time. Mm. Yeah, that was in response to Alison asking about the timing. Um, yeah. So Putin, crazy, crazy smart. We're going to be looking at Liz Truss in a little while, playing some clips, and you are not going to be impressed by her intellect. She, she's neither crazy nor smart. Yes. And... We've seen with our own leaders in recent times where we had Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson was a smartish guy but completely lacking in any character or morals of any sort, but kind of a smart guy in a sense, cunning smart for his own self-preservation. No, no, so I was going to say the character was the buffoon he played in front of the cameras. Yes. Apparently he's not like that in real life. Right. Yeah, he just switches it on. Yes, mm-hmm. and he'd be quite a charming um, sort of guy as well. Yep. Um, meanwhile, you know, we've now got uh, we've had Trump and we've now got Biden. I just, if I'm looking at, say, Morrison, Trump, uh, Biden, Truss, and put those people in front of a microphone and get them to give a long-form speech ranging over 45 minutes, grasping at aspects of history, melding it into current affairs, you know, scooting off on a tangent but coming back, like actually making a persuasive argument on on a tricky and difficult long-winded subject. None of them are capable of it compared to what you see when you look at Putin speaking. And I'm sure these people have teleprompters and whatever, but the other characters couldn't even carry it off with a teleprompter. Um, He's got some smarts about him, I think. And, of course, he's got a lot of craziness about him as well, and maybe that's just a really dangerous package. I mean, one of the things about uh, Trump was if he was uh, smarter, he might have got a lot of more evil things done. Um, Mm. Uh, fortunately, he wasn't hardworking and smart enough to carry out even worse deeds than what he did carry out. So, Putin I mean, could... I don't want to do the old whatever it is law, um, but Hitler was both right. smart and Godwin's law. Is that it? Godwin's law. That yeah. was it. Yeah, he mentions yeah, the mean, Nazis it, first. Yeah, yeah, um, but it was literally smart and crazy. Although it was more crazy towards the end. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, um, so Putin's been making some speeches, and that's been referred to as crazy rants by Putin, almost irrational, crazy rants. But I'm going to read some snippets of different parts of his speech, and you tell me whether you think um, it's crazy or not. Um, so, um. So here we go. This was his speech on the 30th of September, and I'll just read some snippets from it. You know, referendums were held in the Donetsk 
Luhansk People's Republics, Zaporozhye uh, and Kherson regions. Their results have been summed up. The results are known. People made their choice, a clear choice. He goes on to say that um, we've made agreements to admit those regions. And he says, and this, of course, is their right, their inalienable right, which is enshrined in the first article of the UN Charter, which directly speaks of the principle of equal rights and self-determination of peoples. So uh, he says, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the West decided that the world, all of us, would forever have to put up with its dictates, but Russia resisted, revived, strengthened, again took its rightful place in the world. The West is simply haunted by the fact that there is such a great, huge country in the world with its territory, natural wealth, resources, with a people who do not know how and will never live according to someone else's orders. The West is ready to step over everything to preserve the neo-colonial system that allows it to parasitise, in fact plunder the world at the expense of the power of the dollar and technological dictates, collect real tribute from humanity, extract extract the main source of unearned prosperity, the rent of the hegemon. The maintenance of this rent is their key, genuine and absolute self-serving motive. That is why total de-sovereignisation is in their interests. It is critical for them that all countries surrender their sovereignty to the United States. The ruling elites of some states voluntarily agree to do this, voluntarily agree to become vassals. Others are bribed, intimidated. And if it doesn't work out, they destroy entire states, leaving behind humanitarian catastrophes. All we hear from all sides is that the West stands for order based on rules. Where did they come from? Who even saw these rules? Who agreed? Listen, this is just some kind of nonsense. Sheer deception, double or already triple standards. It's just designed for fools. Uh, dear listener, you might remember we talked about rules-based order as this concept uh, a few weeks ago. Anyway, he goes on. Russia is a great millennial power, a country civilization, and will not live by such rigged false rules. Western elites deny not only national sovereignty and international law, the hegemony has a pronounced character of totalitarianism, despotism and apartheid. They brazenly divide the world into their vassals, into the so-called civilised countries and into all the rest, who, according to the plan of today's Western racists, should join the list of barbarians and savages. False labels, rogue country, authoritarian regime are already ready They stigmatise empire peoples and states, and there is nothing new in this. Oh, that's probably going on and on. I'll stop. Like, okay, it's a rant, and of course it's biased from his point of view, and of course he's grabbing... Self-serving. Self-serving, of course. But, hey, he's a leader of a country making a self-serving statement that... um, I wouldn't call it an irrational rant... And he doesn't strike me as somebody stupid as I'm reading this stuff. And okay, it's translated from the original Russian, and who knows how much he wrote. But it just the way he carries himself. Um, look, I'm not a fan of Putin. I'm not an apologist for him, but I'm just saying that if you want to describe him as an irrational, uh, it would be dangerous would, to underestimate him. Yeah. So, and from his point of view, and not all of it, but some of it actually is true. And, of course, the best lies are mixtures of truth and falsehood. Yeah. And it, 
you could call it a very clever mix of all that stuff. So anyway, to call it a um, uh, irrational rant is incorrect and he's, I think, dangerously clever. So where he takes the world next is anyone's guess. But it appears to me that there are people just as irrational and just as dangerous on the other side blowing up his pipelines. That's what it appears to, to me. So, um, yeah. Bromman in the chat room, um, reading my mind, says, Putin is not irrational. He is coldly rational, which is why he is so dangerous. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, he obviously overestimated his ability or, or underestimated the difficulty of invading Ukraine. Mm. I'm sure under his plan it would have been over in a matter of weeks. Mm. Yep. It'll be interesting to see how much they hang on to. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, of course, you know, he mentioned the referendum and who knows how that election was conducted. Can you even conduct an election during a war zone? The people who probably would have voted against it you know, joining Russia, other people who would have left and not be around to do the voting. So um, there was also very difficult. an argument that, and I don't know which of the regions it was, but one of those was a, a mining region and mm. a lot of the people there were Russian mine workers. Mm. So they were Russian citizens anyway. Yeah, in that general Donbass area. Mm. Yep. Mm. It's tricky. So, yeah, uh, you, you flood the area with your nationals who are there to work. Mm. Um, in fact, uh, South Georgia, I think, mm. before the Falklands, was um, invaded by scrap metal workers who the, the Argentine Navy then came in to rescue from the horrible Brits. Was the pretext of one of the invasions. Uh, okay. Yep. So yeah, it, it's not unheard of that you you flood an area with your people and then claim that it is your area. Yeah. Yep. Um, so it's impossible to know where the truth would lie as to what the people of this Donbass area actually want. Who knows? We will never um, know. There's also been. Because, um, of course, Crimea was annexed yes. by Russia. Yes. Uh, and they then handed out Russian passports, told them that they weren't allowed to have Ukrainian passports, gave them Russian passports, and they've now conscripted them into the war. Uh, right. Of course. Yeah. Yep. All right. Let's move across now from all of that to, oh, just briefly, um, there was a UN vote, um, I think, uh, condemning the Russian annexation and Russia vetoed the vote. As they can, mm. Security Council. Uh, guess who abstained? China, India and Brazil abstained from voting. If you, yeah. Yeah, Okay. Significant number, that represents a lot of the world's population uh, abstained from condemning well, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In India 
I don't know about with Putin, but India was very, uh, a lot of their weaponry and army was based on Russian mm. hardware. Mm. So definitely um, historical links. Mm. Uh, Brazil is Bolsonaro. Mm. Uh, and China is another um, totalitarian state. Mm. We'll talk about Bolsonaro a bit later on. Mm-hmm. He relies heavily on the evangelical vote. Can you believe it? They're everywhere. Yeah. Ron, I mean, not they're that everywhere. I'm a fan of Glenn Greenwald, mm. but because um, his husband is a politician in Brazil. Yes. Yeah. And there's been some interesting things from him. Yeah. We'll get on to that. I've, yeah. We're going to scoot around the world here now from. Uh, Pipelines, um, we're going to go across to the UK with the budget and what happened over there. So, oh, what did we have? Essentially, we had Liz Truss, newly minted Prime Minister and uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer, mm-hmm. whose name um, I keep wanting to say kamikaze because it Kamikaze, I believe, is what he's known as. (laughs) Yes. Um, Basically came out with this statement that they were going to have these tax cuts and they were then going to borrow all of this money uh, to replace the money that they weren't getting from the tax. And it wasn't done as a budget, Joe. It was just done as a statement. It was mentioned by the Chancellor in a banker's meeting Mm. and and then became policy at that point. Mm. Um, Kwa Teng is his name. So they didn't call it... Quasi Kwa Teng? They didn't call it a budget because that would have required independent forecasts of the impact of the cuts Mm -hmm. and other massive spending changes. So they purposefully didn't call it a budget. It was just a right-wing thought bubble. Well, it's part of their DNA, really, because they are part of this whole neoliberalist, just neoliberalist to the core. So cutting taxes for the rich uh, is all part of that trickle-down economics, Laffer curve, the idea that if you uh, cut taxes for the rich, you will uh, encourage growth and you will then be getting um, more tax at a lower rate from a bigger economy, which will make up for mm-hmm. the taxes that you've foregone, which has been shown to be complete and utter rubbish, but it um, doesn't matter. Self-serving bullshit from people who have a vested interest. Exactly. So, um, so essentially they came out with a statement, and um, as a result, the pound crashed because people looked at it and went, what, you're not going to collect enough tax and yeah, so you're going to be borrowing this money? They were they were cutting the top rate of tax, which was 45 pence, 45%, mm. which would mean that the top rate was 20%, only they've cut the 20% rate to 19%. Right. So effectively, the top rate of tax would be nineteen percent. Wow, is that right? I never actually mm-hmm. saw that figure. I just yeah. saw it. Okay. Wow. And they're going to have to borrow all this money um, 
to pay for that and for the energy. So the markets basically went, what? That doesn't sound like a good plan. Um, you guys are going to just be printing money at some point. And uh, they then just devalued the pound in an instant and um, essentially there were these retirement funds which had a lot of government bonds as assets and those government value of those bonds then plummeted. So the Bank of England had to come in and start buying bonds in order to support that market and it was a complete uh, shambles and uh, trusts and uh, Kwarteng did not stand up to this scrutiny very well at all. Their performances were pretty ordinary. Apparently traders are, so UK traders are referring to this trust as daggers. Daggers. As in, yep, as in Dagenham, two stops past barking. <laughs> is, that on the, is that on the, on the subway or whatever, is it? Yeah. Right. There's a stop called barking. Yeah, yeah, there's okay. a suburb in London called barking. Of course there is. Yeah. Um, so this was just straight out of neoliberalism, um, which has really been discredited yeah, I mean, around I the world. I she's a big fan of Maggie. I mm. think she thought Maggie was a little too far to the left. Yes. So, um, but as Yanis uh, Furufakis pointed out, Maggie Thatcher took quite a while before she actually uh, dropped the tax rates. But also what she did at the same time was she sold off all of those public Mm -hmm. infrastructure assets. So that's how she managed to balance the books, if you like, is that she... In the short term. Exactly. A short-term sell-off of the commons. So that's what Thatcher did because the... Tax cuts, of course, weren't going to create growth, but the selling off of the public assets on the cheap in the way that she did, that's what sort of um, uh, created the growth that she was trying to get. Maggie Maggie was not stupid. Mm. She may have wrong ideas, but she was a smart woman. Yes. So uh, Truss was not doing any sell-off of public infrastructure Probably because there's nothing left, Joe, to sell off. Probably, I would suspect. So, and um, also Maggie tried to do the um, poll tax, right? Whatever that was she called. Back down on that one. She, yeah, yeah. Uh, there was huge. There was public protests about yes. that. Yeah. So, um, um, so that sounds, uh, you know, agreement that it was a shocking plan what she did. Even, you know, from the IMF and other groups who are normally well in favour of neoliberal policies went, hey, stop, you can't do this, this is just going too far. But she mm-hmm. did get, she, they did get some support, uh, Joe. So, <clears throat> so there was some defence of Liz Truss. Um, so there's a guy, um, uh, a columnist, Alistair Heath, writing in the UK's Daily Telegraph, during this fiasco, this is what he had to say. Quasi Kwarteng's budget is a moment in history that will radically transform Britain. Columnist. Yeah, it already has. (laughs) 
If that sounds prophetic, reserve your judgment, Joe, until you get to the end of the first paragraph. It goes on. This was the best budget I've ever heard a British Chancellor deliver by a massive margin. The tax cuts were so huge and bold, the language so extraordinary, that at times, listening to Quasi Quartan, I had to pinch myself to make sure I wasn't dreaming, that I hadn't been transported to a distant land that actually believed in the economics of Milton Friedman and F.A. Hayek. Like, this is not sarcasm. This is genuine awe by this Alistair Heath. Um, He said, The PM must hold her nerve. Her vision is exactly right for managing the transition to a post-Brexit economy built on a sustainable expansion rather than a debt-fueled mirage. But she wasn't going to borrow anyway. Um, No, no, she was going to cut services. Yeah. And borrow. Because she was giving away so much. And finally, a piece so daft it's become kind of brilliant. This is all from uh, a crikey article that I'm reading from, by the way. Conservative peer Daniel Hannan, also known as Lord Hannan of Kingsclear, because Britain is a parody of itself, Joe. Uh, he argued it's not the tax cuts causing these economic catastrophes. It is the mere hypothetical possibility that someone other than Truss might be in charge someday. What we've seen since Friday is partly a market adjustment to the increased probability that Labor leader Sir Keir Starmer will win in 2024. That was this guy's argument. And these people get um, into the House of Lords and to write columns in the Daily Telegraph. This is the calibre of some of the commentary. There you go. Um, well, yeah. Telegraph is a leading magazine, uh, a newspaper. <laughs> yes. <sighs> okay. Um, the, the Daily Torygraph, as it's known. Yeah. Um, Okay, so it wasn't a budget. I mentioned that already. And um, look, there's a difference between we were talking about cultural things earlier, Joe, before we were recording, and how culturally the the Brits are different from Australia and the UK. They're they're a different mob there. I've just got um, a couple of videos I want to show here. This is to do with the energy crisis. So um, in Naples. Um, the public got their energy bills and, you know, what do the Italians do? They riot in the streets, they create bonfires and they put their, their energy bills in the bonfire. Here's just a little bit of that. It goes on. You get the feeling. And um, mm-hmm. just just an example of the difference, I'd like to show you what, what they do in the UK uh, when they get their energy bills. This is the different treatment of it. So, Okay, here we go. So we've got, we've got, we'll pay your energy bills, we've got £1,000 as well. So this is energy bills, I think, for four months if it stops on that. Nice. Uh, so how are, your, how, how are your energy bills? Are you a bit worried about it all? Um, major. 
Yeah. I've got one of these prepayment meters and it's absolutely murder. Oh, God. Right, well, let's hope it lands on one of those then. Whatever, right. you're going to win some money, so don't go. worry. Here yep. we go. One way, one way or t'other. Here we go. One way or t'other. Where it stops, nobody knows. £1,000 or energy bill. It is going to be... It's oh! your energy bill! Oh, my God, thank we're, you. We're paying your energy bill for four months. Oh, fantastic. No worries. Oh, oh what a relief. Thank you very much. Oh, listen, well done, you. What's, what, what stage of... Late stage capitalism have we entered, Joe? <laughs> Can the Brits get angry? Can they ride in the streets and burn their energy bills like the Italians? Or are they just going to hope to win a prize in a, in a morning game show? I'm watching a YouTube barrister, as in a barrister who's on YouTube, mm. and he was saying, yeah, I, I see there's a social movement going, just don't pay your energy bills, and saying, please don't do that because you can get a lot of, of trouble, you know, here are some better ways of doing this. Right, yeah. But uh, he basically had flagged that there was a lot of, well, if everybody doesn't pay their energy bill, what are they going to do? They can't put us all in jail. Yes. So there's definitely a a social movement that's talking about it, whether they're going to do it or not. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the, is it British Gas had to take out a full-page advert because... The government has capped the average energy bill to two and a half thousand pounds. Uh, Don't know. Didn't right. say. Okay. Um, but they said because people were assuming that their personal energy bill would be no more than two and a half thousand. Right. And they had to take out a full page ad saying, "No, no, no. This has been badly explained. This is a unit cost." And you may consume more or less than a unit, but a unit is going to cost no more than two and a half thousand. Right, right. So people could pay more than two and a half thousand. Yes. And they thought that was going to max out at two and a half. Right. Yeah. Can be cold. You've got friends and relatives over there, Joan. Are mm -hmm. they worried? Are people talking about it in your chat rooms that you inhabit? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Right. So I have a friend who's on unemployment, disability, mm. and they're talking about how they're, uh, they're on a ground floor or basement flat and they're talking about which room is underground and therefore is going to be cheaper to heat and if they close off the rest of the apartment then they can live in the one room mm. and only heat that. Mm. Grim. Yeah. Grim. Anyway, um, it's time I think we try and get a bit of a grip on Liz Truss, see what sort of person she is. I remember I did a podcast with uh, Cam Riley about Boris Johnson, which was good. Mm -hmm. um, it was a good way of sort of finding out, um, getting him straight in my head as to Boris Johnson. Well, of course, Jonathan Pye. Yes. Uh, Jonathan Pye said, uh, who would have thought all those times Boris Johnson was being hailed as the worst Prime Minister this country has ever had. Liz Truss was waiting in the wings thinking, hold my beer. <laughs> He's been He's good, Jonathan Pye. Was it New York? One of, the, one of the American newspapers had him on right. to do an explainer. Okay. He's very good. A video explainer. It's about five minutes, I think. Okay. Yep. 
Yeah. If you're not following Jonathan Pye on uh, the socials, you should. Um, Pye, P-I-E. Okay. Here's a little mix of Liz Truss stuff, just so that you can get a bit of a feel for this lady. Um, See what you think of her. We have never had it so good. We are growing wheat more competitively than the Canadian prairies. We coordinated international allies to call out Ukraine. We had, sorry, to call out Russia. And we are selling tea to China. Yorkshire tea. Well, there haven't been as many starter homes as we would have liked. How many did you build? I don't have the exact numbers for you. Well, it's easy to remember. It's zero. You built none. I was at HMP Pentonville last week. They've now got patrol dogs who are barking, which helps deter drones. So we're using all kinds of solutions to deal with Cornish sardines of Herefordshire pears, of Norfolk turkey, of Melton Mowbray pork pies, and of I'm just going to pause it there, Joe. Can you hear those culinary items? Does your mouth water? Are they? Are you into pork pies? And no, I prefer the Scotch pie, but whatever. Yeah. What is it with pork pies? Are they? Yeah. Oh. Uh, classic British fare. Okay. Course of black pudding. Yeah. We're expecting the first refugees to arrive. You like black pudding? Yeah, absolutely. With what? a fry up. What is black pudding? Uh, blood sausage. Right. So, I, so I sausage like with just... It's, what do you, when you say blood sausage, I mean... I think it's blood and oats. Okay. So they soak the oats in blood and then put it into a sausage casing. Okay, there's no real meat. It's just oats and blood. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's good. And you fry it up along with your um, bacon and eggs and yep. uh, fried bread. Mm. Put hair on your chest. It's very, very salty. All right. We'll keep going. Arrive next week uh, in the United Kingdom. Um, I think, I don't know exactly how, uh, how they will get to the United Kingdom, but I know that we expect that they will certainly be arriving next week. Phasing out their youth. Youth. In December, I'll be in Beijing, opening up new pork markets. I'm a bit sceptical as to whether they're able to grow wheat more competitively than the Canadian prairies. What's, is that what she said? Yeah, she did. Yeah, and that they would be selling tea to China. Probably selling just... opium to China, maybe. <laughs> Yorkshire tea. They're probably selling three kilos to expat Yorkshiremen living in China at some well, specialty. It's, 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 some, it's some place with a Union Jack on it selling Marmite and other well, culinary dishes. Well, maybe the stock market in the UK is selling Indian tea to China. Yeah. <laughs> in the chat room, Alison says, the Queen died two days after shaking Liz Truss's hand. Just saying. That's good, Alison. She died of disappointment. Yeah. You know, there's nothing impressive in that, is there? Uh, She's got a strange mannerism about her. So um, now the next clip is going to be a long one, and normally these clips I keep them down to like a minute or something like this. The the next one's going to be a long one, but I'm going to preface it um, because I think this one's important. Joe, um, 
as we look around the world, Australia, US, UK, for example, and we're really seeing that it appears to be the decline uh, in a very terminal way of the right-wing parties. So in um, Australia and the USA, we've really seen an infiltration of evangelical religious nutters into mm-hmm. um, the party, which, which combined with neoliberalism has been a nasty mix, but there's certainly been this element of, of religion into the conservative parties in Australia and the US. And we were talking earlier, and it doesn't seem to have been the case in the UK that there's this evangelical Pentecostal infiltration of the Conservative Party. It doesn't seem to have happened. And, well, tell me your theory. Well, t- tell the listener again, Joe, your theory on that. Uh, I've, I've certainly heard it alleged that having a, a state religion has protected the UK in some ways. Mm. Having a benign state religion, um, having 12 archbishops in the House of Lords, having the, the monarch as the head of the, the state religion has stopped the ability of the more extreme versions of religion to get a foothold. Mm. Um, and, and also, you know, I, I, my secularism has come about since I've come to Australia. It wasn't an issue in the UK. It's, it's a very, very private matter. You just don't talk about your religion. Mm. Um, and if you are religious, you don't flaunt it in the same way that you do over here. Mm. Um, it, it's considered rude. Yep. Um, so You don't weaponise it either, the way it's... Well, yeah. there, there has been, I mean, um, but but I think... My parents' generation really were the ones who, possibly even the my grandparents' generations, uh, maybe the war and the mortality. I mean, my grandfather was nominally religious because he was a Mason, but I I don't remember him ever having any obvious religious beliefs. My parents were both non-believers. Isn't the whole point of Masons that you're secretive? Um, yeah. Mm. I, I, I merely know because I was told that I could become a Mason because my grandfather was. Right. Did he shake your hand in a funny way? Can you remember that? No. Right. No, 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 I think this was after his death, my mother told right. me. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, so we've seen, yeah, religious takeover in um, Australia and USA, not so much in the UK, but we are seeing the demise, it looks like, of the UK Conservative Party with the calibre of politician that they've got there to choose from now. It seems a bit like the calibre of politician that the Liberals have now got. The the sort of pre-selected candidates that they have doesn't look good. And if you just look at the polls, for example, the latest polls show that um, uh, this is from YouGov in the UK. If an election was held, Labor would have three hundred and forty-six seats, uh, as opposed to the Conservatives with just sixty-one. 
based on where the polls were the other day. Like that is just a complete smashing. So almost good as WA. Yes, indeed. So, um, so I just wanted to um, look at. But you know, um, after John Major, um, yeah, we we had Tony Blair. Hmm. Actually, we probably had. Was it Gordon Brown first, or was Gordon Brown after Blair? I think he was after. Anyway, Hmm. um, the Tories had been in power for a long time. Labour got in. Labour Mm. was in power for 20 years. Mm. And so this was the swing back, which is why the Conservatives won for such a long time, because people were sick of Labour because they'd been in power for so long. Right. Yep. And I think, yeah, we'll see a swing back in the opposite direction. Mm. Yeah. So have a listen to this one, dear listener, and think of it in terms of, okay, uh, Liberal Party Australia, Republicans in the US, yes, they've got issues with uh, religious infestation, but there's also other issues there and maybe some of this UK stuff applies as well. I found this an interesting description by this guy who was Rory Stewart uh, who had worked with Liz Truss. It goes on for a bit of a while, but I think it's worth uh, listening to. He speaks very well. So I, I was uh, worked as a junior minister when Liz Truss was the Secretary of State uh, in the Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. She's somebody who I think a little bit like Quasi Quarteng, actually. Uh, she can be funny, she can be good company, but she very much relies on throwaway lines, quite provocative throwaway lines. She's quite difficult to have a detailed, thoughtful conversation with. It's almost as though there's a sort of attention deficit disorder. And that's true in modern politics in general. I think it's something to do, it's partly, you know, the way in which you cut your own videos. But we create we create a world of very, very quick throwaway comments, which are quite radical, quite provocative. And she's very suited to that. She's a kind of, she's very much a politician, not of Twitter or of Facebook, but of Instagram. She's generated a lot of her political career of images of herself in different costumes in front of different flags. And I think it's one of a problem that goes well beyond Liz Truss or Kwasi Kwarteng to the depth of our politics, which is the things that really matter require quite thoughtful, complicated, long conversations where you're learning all the time what you got wrong. And instead of which, we've got a culture increasingly developed of people who have very strong opinions, which are frequently very popular because you just say, I'm going to cut taxes. Everyone's like, that's great. But what we're lacking, and I think Liz Truss is almost the most sort of extreme example of this, is the time for thoughtful, nuanced conversations, which admit we could be wrong. So what are Liz Truss's politics? Libertarian? Yes, I think I think she is libertarian. I think she and Kwasi Kwarteng and a lot of this cabinet and a lot of the people at that end of the Brexit party are not really, in my sense, traditional Tories. I mean, traditional Tories, as you can imagine, are seen as a bit fuddy-duddy. Uh, you know, criticised us that we think we're a bit out of date, we're living in the past. We're obviously very... Um, have deep kind of nostalgic romantic affections for the monarchy, for the British army, for the British landscape, for small farmers. This is all part of the the story of what an MP like me in the Lake District was about. Right? But Liz Truss is somebody who was 
comes from a radical left-wing family. She was a Lib Dem. She was a radical Republican who wanted to abolish the monarchy. She's a radical free marketeer. And so I think it's actually there's a, a split on values here about what values really matter in Canada. We had an old Conservative Prime Minister in Boris Johnson, of whom you were very critical. And now we have a new Conservative Prime Minister, Liz Truss, of whom you were just very critical. So do you think you can still describe yourself as a Conservative? Well, I'm, I'm not a Conservative in the modern Conservative Party. I was thrown out of the Conservative Party. I'm found increasingly difficult to recognise because you know, if you look at two big things that I think really mattered in the conservative tradition have been lost. One is commitment to the environment, landscape, stewarding it. And that was something that even Boris Johnson was a bit better about. Now, Boris Johnson actually, with all his flaws, and I really disliked him, I thought he was a terrible prime minister, but he did actually care about conservation of the environment, something that his wife cared about, something his father cared about, it's in his DNA. And it is something that was one part of the conservative tradition, which was stewardship is the word we call it, of our landscape, of our environment, our natural resources. I was very proud as a minister to protect funding for the national parks. Six years has gone into developing quite a complicated nature-based farming system. And that's one thing which Liz Truss seems to be signaling that she's throwing out of the window in this dash for growth. And the problem with the dash for growth is that really the older conservative tradition was about saying there are many other things that matter more than just growing the economy as fast as you can. Traditional conservatives cared about tradition itself, cared about the landscape, cared the better bits of the conservative tradition, cared about rural communities, cared about society, cared about history, cared about the past. And the problem with a radical drive for growth is it's the modern world at its most radical, everything being churned up all the time, everything changing all the time. That's one thing. Second thing is another bit of the conservative tradition was about prudence. It was about restraint. It was about not moving too quickly. I mean, the, the clue was in the word conservatism. You were trying to preserve and protect what was best about the past. And the problem with what we're seeing at the moment is it's a form of radicalism, which isn't prudent. It's not careful. Are you trying to tell me something? Uh, yeah. Politics Joe, that's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, look, when the Liberal Party does split into a new Conservative Party in Australia, you know, they could do all right to just listen to what that guy said, actually, and frame a new Liberal Party around that. Um, um, yeah. yeah. But again, I thought the Liberal Party over here was wedded to tax cuts. The, the current version is, yes. Um, you know, Well, Howard got rid of the wets, if you like, um, and and left only the dries. So in, in an economic sense, Howard converted the Liberal Party in two ways. He he got rid of the soft liberals who were concerned about society and were not obsessed with growth. Mm-hmm. And he also then introduce this religious element as well uh, in our society. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, pre-Howard there were an element or a faction in the Liberal Party called the wets who were arguing with the dries and um, Howard got rid of the wets. So, uh, 
this when you hear quasi Corteng and you hear Liz Truss in their speeches, they talk about growth, growth, growth. And it reminds me of Morrison with jobs and growth and how the economy has to grow at all costs. Doesn't matter what happens, provided there's a growth number there that they can point to, then all's well because a growing economy is all you need. And it's such a quantitative thing. Never mind the growing pile of bodies. Yeah, it's such a quantitative thing without a qualitative thing. And essentially after reading that book, which we'll talk about at some stage about the environment, we just can't keep growing. You cannot keep growing the economy forever. At some point you have to stop Mm. and stabilise and actually go backwards because a thing that keeps growing is actually a cancer. That's the most... Uh, compelling metaphor for it. It's well, and, and I think a lot of our economy is based on population growth. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, sustainable Australia, which some people is arguing is xenophobic. Mm. But, yeah, a, a lot of the sustainability discussions is about uh, we can't just keep growing our population. At some stage we have to push back. Yeah. So, you know, I think if the world in 100 years is a better place, it'll be because the population of the world is more like 3 billion rather than 8 billion. So um, it'll be a more manageable place. Mm. There is a, a theory, is it the Kardashev scale, I think? Mm-hmm. Talks about civilizations by the amount of energy that they can produce. Right. And that there is a perfect number where once you create more than that, you actually have uh, energy to expend. And so you can feed your people, you can do whatever you need to. Mm. But it has to be not at the expense of um, the planet. Mm. So you you can't be consuming non-renewable sources. Yes. Yep. That's, uh, that's going to be the solution, is actually the population at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. If it's going to be a happy ending... Um, look, we've been banging on about um, uh, the neoliberalism and the trickle-down sort of theory <clears throat> just to make sure it's clear to everybody how trickle-down economics works. I uh, just got this little explainer for you. Minister, we've heard a lot about trickle-down economics in the past few days, but a, a lot of people still aren't sure what it actually means. Oh, I see. So, l- listen, it's very simple. Here's the plan. We give the top 1% more money... And? And what? Uh, and after that? Uh, what What do you mean after that? I I just... Look, you asked I, me to explain what it was. Yes, I, I just thought that there might be something after that. Well, what, what more are you expecting? Minister, thank you. I did tell you it was simple. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. from um, at exploding underscore heads, if you want to hear more of that sort of stuff. Funny guys. Um... Oh, Joe, just quickly, um, King Charles III feels weird saying that. Mm, It does. Mm. He was going to attend the COP27 Climate Change Summit. He was. Mm. Liz Truss asked him or told him, that's not a good idea, you're not going. And he, acting on the advice of the Prime Minister, said, okay, I won't go. Mike Carlton on Um, Twitter had a solution. 
mm-hmm. he said that um, <laughs> that Australia should instruct him to go as king of Australia if he really wants to go. The monarch is supposed to be apolitical. Mm. Um, and I, I don't want him meddling in pushing homeopathy forward. I don't want him being an Islamophile as he has been in the past. Yes. Um, what he did as the Duke of, sorry, the Prince of Wales. Mm-hmm. Um, Duke of Cornwall is different from what he does as king mm. uh, and I think whilst I don't like Liz Trust telling him not to go to something that would be a good thing um, I, I don't know that as monarch that is his role and maybe he could send William in his place mm. Mm. Hey, my chat's frozen are people still talking or is it... Uh... I think everyone's fallen asleep. Ah, okay. Uh, If you're still there in the chat room, keep chatting away. I would have gone with your comments. Um, Just quickly, Joe, how much time we got? Okay. Um, Because this is a sort of a uh, around-the-world edition of the podcast. Um, Oh, Shailene, James, Alison, they're all good. They're just enthralled. Good to see. Brazil just had an election. First mm-hmm. round, um, and I think they've got to go back for another round to try and sort it out. And um, the they current do, yeah. guy is Bolsonaro, a former army captain under the military dictatorship and a member of Brazil's uh, fast-growing evangelical Christian community. Joe? Did you and know? also a COVID denier. Yes. Ticking all the boxes there. So... Um, evangelical Christians, fastest growing religious movement in Brazil. Uh, in South America in general, I think. Mm, yep. Uh, There's a big um, push to spread the virus from the United States. Yes. Yep. And um, they're just having difficulty getting Catholic priests to go out mm-hmm. into these communities. They just didn't have enough Catholic priests. Funnily enough, there's not many guys who want to lead a life of celibacy in a remote South American region. Even if you can fuck young boys. Yes. Just uh, not enough wanting to do it, funnily enough. Yeah. They really need to work on that, the Catholic Church. In fact, I think they were looking at an exemption particularly for South America. Oh, I don't know about that, Mm. but they were offering Anglican priests the ability if they converted and were already married yes. to to stay, to, to come across yes, and be a married Catholic priest. Yeah, interesting. Um, so this one from uh, Consortium News, according to a survey by the Data Folha Institute, evangelical Christians are one of the fastest growing religious groups. Today account for at least 31% of the population. In the 2018 elections, this is in Brazil, 70% of voters who identified as evangelical Christians voted for Bolsonaro and were the decisive vote that helped him. So while Bolsonaro defines himself as Catholic, he's one of the most prominent political figures supporting evangelicalism. 
He himself was baptised in 2016 by Pastor Everaldo from the Social Christian Party and the Assemblies of God Church. And Bolsonaro's wife is an active Baptist in the megachurch. So he's Catholic, but got himself an extra baptism by the look of it and is definitely playing to the evangelical crowd and his wife's a Baptist, an active Baptist. Um, they're everywhere, Joe. They are. Mm. And um, I had a Filipino colleague that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. He was going to go and get a vasectomy. And I went, really? Because, yeah, Filipinos are all Catholic. Mm. And he's not. He's an evangelical as well. Ah. Yep. So I think, um, I think their biggest success is not converting non-believers. It's converting people from other faiths. Yes. Yep. It's a much, you know, if... It's a much easier. It's well. It's like when Paul converted all those Jews. Like he said, mm-hmm. you know, guess what? You can have a wider diet, and you I, don't I have to. I thought you meant the twelfth man was out <laughs> proselytizing. No. <laughs> and um, and by the way, you don't have to um chop a piece of skin off your penis. And I'm mm-hmm. like, great. So I can be part of this sort of Jewish sect without going through that. Sounds great. Sign me up. Secret to his success. It's quite simple, really. So uh, in the show notes you'll see an article by Glenn Greenwald talking about a politician who uh, had a bit of a run at presidency and was popular because he was a firefighter who appealed to the working man. Guess what? Another bloody evangelical. Uh, It's just all everywhere. Japan, this one. Greenwald has talked over about I think the amount of security he and his husband have to have now mm. because of the, the death threats they've been having mm. because he's been highlight, highlighting corruption and mm. other shenanigans that have been going on. Mm. Yeah. I don't know how they're still alive. Good luck to them. Uh, in Japan, so Abe... Shinzo, the former Prime Minister who was assassinated in July. Um, The public mood shifted. This is from The Economist. The public mood shifted soon after the assassination. Once the initial shock of this peaceful country had worn off, attention turned to the killer, Yamagami Tatsuya, who said he murdered the former Prime Minister because of his links to the Unification Church, a cult-like religious group that Mr Yamagami's mother... Uh, yes, the former Prime Minister. Okay. Yes, um, because of the links that um, Abe Shinzo had to um, the Unification Church. Um, and Aren't they the Moonies? Yes. The Unification Church? Okay. Yes. Uh, so this assassin's mother um, uh, was part of that church and had given a lot of money to the church. Uh, the killing, okay. the killing, shed light on the um, IDP's murky ties to the outfit. I think that's the political party, uh, which run deeper than many Japanese had known. It reinforced the sense that too much in Japanese politics happens behind curtains, away from the public eye. The result was rising anger with the government. 
Rather than announcing a swift break with the church, as some close to him advised, the Prime Minister hemmed and hawed, hoping to avoid internal party feuds and wait for attention to fade. Frustration grew. Japanese media latched onto the Unification Church. Television talk shows paraded people who said it had wronged them. Founded in South Korea the popular known as, uh, and popularly known as the Moonies, um, they made common cause with Japanese anti-communists, including Abe's grandfather in the 1960s. It spread widely in Japan. Um, it's faced criticism for its practices of extracting exorbitant fees for spiritual goods. And the assassin, uh, Mr Yamagami, his mother is said to have donated over 100 million yen to the group. So the current Prime Minister, I think, is Kishida. Mr Kishida's belated attempts to draw a line under the scandal only made matters worse. In August, he reshuffled his cabinet, in part to distance himself from figures linked to the Unification Church. Yet more than 20 ministers and vice ministers turned out to have ties to it. The IDP later conducted an internal survey which found that nearly half of its 379 lawmakers had links to the church, from receiving campaign support to attending its events. Many Japanese would like to see a more complete accounting of party ties to the church. What they got instead was the party's attempt to lionise Abe, who, for all of his international acclaim, was a divisive figure at home. There we go. The Moonies mm. have a deep infiltration into Japanese politics. So it's not just the West. They have crazy nutbags in politics. It's everywhere. Brazil, Japan, they're everywhere. See that Essendon appointed a new chairman? Essendon uh, Football Club? Only in your show notes. Or CEO. And apparently... It's got some connection with some crazy evangelical group which has got anti-gay agenda and probably anti-abortion as well. At least he won't be forcing him to wear shirts. Well, he won't be now because he got sacked or he uh, resigned. People said, if that's your church and you follow those, nothing. that's your moral code, mm-hmm. then you're not suitable as the head of this football organisation. See you later. Yeah. Ah, Joe, I have the IFEG Secular Index, which is sadly in disrepair and needs to be updated. People were shocked when I would talk to people and say, I want to know what religion our politicians are because I think it's important that people go, it's none of your business. (laughs) In Japan, they think it's your business and the football club thinks it's the business to know what the CEO's religion is, it's an important thing to know. I don't know that your religion itself, again, you know, coming from a background where it's a private matter, mm. as long as it's not influencing your vote, mm. if you're voting on behalf of your constituents mm. rather than voting on behalf of your church, mm. um, I don't care what your religious beliefs are. Mm. Well, if you're under a conflict of interest, I'd like to know. Yeah. And if you are passing laws that deal with things like the funding of private religious schools or the funding of private hospitals 
or funding of anything where a religious organisation might be a beneficiary, um, where religions play a large role. I mean, I remember Christian Porter listed on his register of influence, uh, register of uh, interests, his membership of some chook, chook breeding association or something like that, but wouldn't list his religion. Like, uh, if you want to be part of Australian public life where you're making decisions where they are quite often involving religion or the funding of religious activity, then I want to know. And so much of a budget, I think, relates to religious activity that you couldn't really, if you were to abstain every time a vote came up that pertained to religion, you quite possibly may not, not be, be voting. Yes, exactly. So... Mm, that's my view. Anyway, um, I was thinking just famously, Kennedy was deemed to be unelectable because he was a was a Catholic, mm-hmm. uh, and he made assurances that his Catholicism wasn't going to influence him as a, a president. Yeah, yeah. So it is possible. Mm. Anyway, I think it's uh, what people should know and um, I need to do something with that secular index and try and update it. Anybody out there with spare time who might be able to help? It involves doing a lot of Googling to try and figure out what people's religion is. So um, if you want to help out. One thing uh, uh, was who departed the podcast uh, a while ago now, he was good in helping me out in doing a lot of that. So... It's been a while since it was updated. And um, look, um, somebody suggested that I should do a bit of a fundraiser and try and get some investigative person to help with it, but I don't really feel like fundraising. Um, so I wonder if there's people out there who could volunteer. Maybe we time. should just email all the politicians. They won't respond. I've done that. You email them and say, what religion are you? And they they don't respond. So, I thought at least some would. No. Save oh, you. Only in the run-up to election, some of the candidates will, and it's usually the green candidates and the strong atheists who respond, and the others don't even respond. So if you're interested, shoot me an, uh, an email or we'll get in contact, and I'll draw up a list and maybe give you 10 or 20 names, and you Google away and see if you can discover what religion some people are. So Maybe we should get Wendy Francis's secret list. Does she have a secret list, does she? Come on. ACL have got to have a list. Yes. Well, good luck if you can get that, Joe. Yeah, you should get that. Yeah. All right. Well, Joe, nearly two hours. That's enough. I made it without coughing. Um, we don't have to worry about Shay anymore. No. It's not like she's going to get shark tanked. That's true. Still in the chat room, Shay. Mm. Look, I think next week I really want to talk about currency again. It's such a vital part of what's going on. If you really want to understand the world, you need to understand economics and currency is the is one of the trickiest ones. So um, I think I will give currency another crack next week and try and talk about that because um, we just saw in the UK policy decision, pound crashed. It's tricky to get your 
head around currency, but it's very important. It's one of the reasons why America's in charge. So I'll put that on yeah, the agenda. Yeah, I mean, apparently the pound is parity with um, the US dollar at the moment. Right. Or very close to. Mm. Yep. And basically, if you look at a chart, you'll see that everybody has dropped in relation to the US dollar um, in the last sort of 18 months. Um, so it's interesting because Australia was parity with the US dollar five years ago. Hmm. Long time ago now, but yeah. So I think currency next week. That'll keep me busy. Join us then if you're interested. And um, uh, yeah, I think that's all. Thanks for being in the chat room. Thanks for your comments. Talk to you next week. Bye for now. And it's a good night from him. I've just listened to your podcast about private schools, and I must say I'm appalled. If we don't continue to fund private schools, we won't have an audience for the ballet or for the opera. I mean, who will play polo and rugby? Where would we be without rugby? What are you thinking, man? Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and, uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.